Good day, Father. It's great to be with you in this shared space. Um, this is Flanagan's Ecologic Podcast with our father-daughter energy crash course edition. And my name is Sierra Flanagan. I'm joined by my dad, Ted Flanagan, the star of today's show. And today we're going to be talking about some of the amazing international travels that you have hosted and corralled and experienced. And we, we won't be able to get to all, but um, yeah, Dad, why don't you start us off? What, what inspired this podcast? You've had nearly 40 years of these amazing trips around the world, opening people's eyes to energy innovations and technologies in international countries. So, so t tell us what inspired today's podcast? Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here with you, of course. Um, yeah, I was talking with Terry, actually, one, one, one day we were driving and I just started talking about different international trips that I'd taken. I, was, I just sort of kept going and, and realized, oh my gosh, I've had, had so many different trips that have been really enriching. And, and I must say, there's, I have a lot of friends. I think of Michael Totten, Russell Sturm, Peter Rumsey. You know, so I have a lot of friends that have done a lot more international travels than I have. But, but I think they would say, and a lot of us would say, it's just so enriching. So most of, our, most of my work has been here in the States, uh, doing you know, running programs and consulting services. But, but the international travels have just been really enriching. So I know I've written up a lot of these trips in, in the newsletters over time, but Thought it might be kind of fun to reminisce on a, on, a, on a few and and it, and it hopefully inspire some of our readers to recognize that so when you're busy with your discipline here at, at home well what's it like in other countries and and, and see if you can get out there and, and, and experience that too so this has been an important part of your work um not only on the ground in this country but bringing people to other countries what's the list how many how many countries have you visited? And then of course we want to hear about all your favorites. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's been a good exercise for me to jot, jot them down. And I think, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, relevant work, uh, Canada, the Soviet Union, France, Singapore, Germany, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, the Philippines, Thailand, China, Japan, New Zealand, Spain, Iceland, and South Korea. So, uh, quite, quite a, quite a few. And, um, Again, those all these have just and, and been very fulfilling, and certainly and certainly enriched my work life. Absolutely. Um, so, what would you say overall? What have you learned from these trips? Yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. I I am I between business travel and just personal travel. I just am of the mind that ninety eight percent of all the people in the in the world are great. They're all good. They're all good folks. It's very reassuring that in every country I've been to, I just, I just feel like I connect with people and so much can be learned by sharing a, a bit between different cultures. And certainly a lot of my career has been focused on energy efficiency and, and the Europeans were fantastic with, of course, with building shells and really well insulated buildings and really good windows and all that kind of stuff and mass transit. And then, you know, the Americans are really good with energy efficiency and incentive programs and financing and the Asians have a lot of controls and electronics. I'm, I'm gross generalizations, but there's been ways of bringing different contingents from one continent to another to to share on that. And uh, I think the global perspective has been really important for me. I remember years ago when we learned that 
that China now had surpassed the United States in terms of CO2 equivalent emissions. And everybody was sort of damning China for that. You know, oh my gosh, how unconscionable. And they're traveling in China and having the Chinese say, you know, we are the world's factory. We're sending all of our stuff to you. You're buying all of our stuff. Uh, made right. it very clear to me that how we're how interconnected we are and, uh, and globally interconnected, interdependent. And it's just so true. And I just want to echo that, that, you know, anywhere you go and all my travels, same thing, 98, 99% of the people who I've come across have been so kind. Um, and so it's yeah. just a great lesson and something to remember. Um, so we're going to do a mini series on your travels, but first, are there any work trips on your radar? Yes, there are. Well, I think uh, I think I've told you, but I'm working with Rob Pratt and his co new company, Pacific Clean Energy Partners. He's appointed me as the director of rural electrification, and the purpose of this company is to go to Pacific Islands, and in this case, the Solomon Islands is our first uh, our first project, and and to bring in uh, know-how, uh, enthusiasm, uh, capital, and to start to really uh, um, take on a number of things. So. In the Solomon Islands, you know, 80% of the people are not connected to a grid. Uh, if they have electricity, it's a dirty diesel generator. It's power at, you know, it's a, a dollar a kilowatt hour or something like that. So the rural electrification aspect of the project is is really, really exciting, you know, to figure out ways of uh, to bring some of the, the pay-as-you-go models that we've seen in Africa. So the really sort of the micro-financed, uh, tiny little photovoltaic systems with LED lights and all. Uh, bring that to the people in the Solomons. Meanwhile, uh, Pacific Clean Energy Partners is going to be doing large solar installations at at, at the big in, biggest industries all throughout the Solomon Islands. So hmm. that's on the radar as to, um, I don't know what month that will be, but to get over to the Solomon Islands. Long trip over there, but um, a beautiful part of the world. And these these island nations are just desperately in need and have been largely overlooked and very capital constrained. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll have to put a pin on that because I know the Blue Planet Alliance, there's some great work happening with decarbonizing these island nations. So I'm so stoked that you're part of that. <laughs> but let's zoom back. <laughs> let's press yeah. the rewind button um, to your first trip that we'll reminisce on, Canada, to the James yeah. Bay, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was, and, and, and this, I know this is not far away by uh, by other standards, but it was an exciting time. I'd been working for the New York Power Authority in Manhattan. I was a strategic planner, and the Power Authority was in the process of importing more power from the north and uh, from Canada and from the, the eastern side of the James Bay. And Robert Barossa was the prime minister uh, of Quebec, and uh, he was very fired up. He had a whole book called Power from the North. Fascinating. He wanted to take all this excess hydro in Canada, generate a lot of electricity, but then also convert it to hydrogen and send that south to the United States. And so what year I was are we in, talking here? Sorry to interrupt. I guess we're, I guess we're talking about 80, 1984, 1985, somewhere in that time frame. But anyway, I left, uh, I left the New York Power Authority and I was consulting. And I was consulting for Burlington Electric, Burlington, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont's utility. And they were considering a purchase of Canadian power from the James Bay. And so... I was, uh, I was, of course, promoting energy efficiency and renewables as an alternative to that. Uh, but my friend Michel Henway from Hydro-Quebec, 
invited me to come up and to tour the James Bay region. So uh, it was an amazing trip. Uh, flew up to Montreal and then we spent the night and then took a company jet, Hydro-Quebec jet, or not jet, it was a, probably a turboprop plane, way up north from Montreal, just went a couple hours due north into this James Bay region. And it's a region that is about the size of France. <laughs> it's got about 50,000 Cree and Inuit um, Indians and Native Americans. Uh, and it's got this, had just enormous hydro potential. And so Hydro-Quebec, big utility, um, was going to be building all these massive dams and did, did build some absolutely massive dams. In fact, there's a there's a dam up there, Lagrand number two, which is generating 7.7 gigawatts of power. A large nuclear plant is maybe one gigawatt. So, you know, I really, these are massive facilities. So, but it was, it was very interesting to go up there. And even though there's very few people there, one of the effects when you flood large areas, and in this case, it's the Canadian Shield, which is known to have mercury in the, in the ge geologic um, composition. So when you flood large areas, mercury, mercury comes out of the, of the rock into the water and then the fish through biological magnification end up getting poisoned by mercury. And of course, that's what all of the natives are, are living on. Uh, so you're really uh, threatening, um, threatening, you know, the health and well-being of, of these communities uh, with these massive projects. So it was, uh, I was, you know, had been working in New York City. I knew, I knew we needed large scale projects. Of course, we needed large scale projects, but it, when you get up and you see the region and then you start digging in and you realize the, the impacts on the communities, you know, again, that's the value of getting out there and seeing these things, right? Right. Stepping out of our comfort zones and our places we're familiar with. Um, so then you worked with the city of Toronto after that, right? And so tell us about that transition. <laughs> at, at one point, Ontario Hydro, so now we're sliding a little bit across the Canadian the nation of Canada. But at one point, Ontario Hydro had a, a massive plan to build um, a lot of nuclear plants um, in, in, in Ontario and, and just massive uh, supply-side centralized uh, infrastructure projects. Um, and the city of Toronto um, contacted me. I was at Rocky Mountain Institute at the time and, and contacted me and, and said, uh, can, you, can you help us out? Um, and I didn't know really what that meant, but what it ended up meaning, and I, had, I remember having a meeting in a, you know, um, Horton's uh, donut shop, I guess it was near Milton, Ontario, visiting your grandparents. And, and, uh, I realized that the city of Toronto was going to put up a massive fight and that the city didn't believe that the utilities massive construction program uh, heavily laced with nuclear was was really in the best interests of the city of Toronto, and so here was this you know incredibly wealthy metropolitan area, Toronto, largest city in Canada, a powerhouse, going up against the utility, and my job was to bring in examples from America um, of the best the best programs. You know what what's out there? What are the what are the leading utilities in America doing? 
they're not building lots and lots of nuclear plants. Uh, you know, what's PG&E? Pacific Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison and New England Electric. And, you know, what are the best practices that, that could be brought to Toronto, brought to Ontario, and at a least cost or a lesser cost than the, the, the huge build out of nuclear, you know, what could be brought to bear? So that was an amazing project. And I experienced my first design charrette. I'd never heard of a design charrette, you know, a term from the world of architecture where, you know, these aspiring architects, you know, work their butts off and work on their plans all night and then get in a cart, which is called a charrette. And they're taken off to a meeting where everybody critiques their work and they come up with the best, the best plan. But we had a charrette. What would be the very best for Toronto? You know, one of the really interesting things in Toronto was that we were experience, starting to experience a big air conditioning load. You know, like a lot of northern cities, you know, you think heating, but, you know, these big buildings, they have big air conditioning loads. So, you know, out of that came this whole notion, well, couldn't we tap right into Lake Ontario there? Isn't there cold water at the depths of Lake Ontario that could be used? And a whole free cool project uh, has been developed in, in Toronto as a result of that. Very so. Cool. Yeah, the city brought forth, and I'm sure there were other parties to the proceeding, but the city brought forth enough arguments that at the end of the day, Ontario Hydro scrapped. I mean, I can't remember these, had these two big, huge volumes that were just really gorgeous graphics all about the utilities lead and, you know, bother that what it's going to do and everything was going to be great. Scrapped those plans completely and out came a 25-page document, unbound document, courier type, that just said no. We're now we're going to go full steam ahead into energy efficiency and renewables, uh, as the you know, and and be part of this whole movement that was going on, what was called least cost utility planning or integrated resource planning. You know, in the old days, the utilities just built power plants. When there was more demand, they built a power plant. I mean, it was just as simple as that. And now, you know, over the course of the past 30, 40 years, now utilities, you know, look at all look of their at options. Them. They're forced to look at all of their options. It's in their best interest to look at all of their options. And to come up with you know things that are economic for their customers as well as for their utilities and their shareholders. Very cool. So yes, in those early years, and now some of those technologies have become more streamlined and widespread. So very cool. So next up, we're gonna hop over the pond, <laughs> um, which time. I'm looking forward to hearing about this. Your time in Moscow and the global forum. So yeah, maybe you can give us a little bit of context. How did this come about? What was the year? <laughs> what was it? 1988, uh, yeah. And this okay. is when I really- Dead of winter. I, oh gosh, it was cold, yeah. And um, and this was the when I realized that people, what people really like to hear about in my newsletters are some of the fun trips and the, and the fun places that I've gone because I, I wrote all about going to the global forum and everybody just, I just got tons of, of, of great critique and, and um, comments, exciting, exciting comments, but. So yeah. So hard. for our listeners, you know, what is the global forum? Yeah, it was, um, it was a nonprofit organization that I think was based in New York city and it had, it had this notion that it should bring together the world's parliamentary and spirit, spiritual leaders uh, and address different causes and, and different issues. And, so in 1988, the Global Forum hosted the Global Forum on Sustainable Development, and it was hosted in Moscow uh, by the by the Russians or the Soviets. Um, I was at Rocky Mountain Institute at the time. Uh, Amory Lovins was, uh, of course, invited. I should back up and say, 
there's about a thousand people at the forum. There were the world's spiritual and parliamentary leaders. So, so spiritual, the grand mufti of Syria and you know, all sorts of people that were way out on the, you know, think globally, um, on the spiritual side. And then parliamentary, you know, Al Gore was in our delegation. You know, we had a number of government officials. There were government officials from all over the world. And then they brought in 100 um, uh, sustainability experts. I was one of them. Amory was one of them um, to, you know, to, to help guide this, this whole forum. So um, what an amazing, what an amazing trip. And uh, off we flew. I remember flying, um, leaving Heathrow and flying towards Moscow. And sitting with this woman from India, and we were talking about, you know, excited about going to the forum. And she said, what do you think the biggest problems in the world are? And, you know, I was very quick to say greed and population growth. And she said, well, I don't know about greed, but but population growth, I disagree with you. We need we, we more people we have, the, the better minds, the more collective vision that we have. Um, I was shocked by that statement, that there's, a, that there's value in, in population growth. But at the Global Forum, Al Gore gave what became, you know, the sort of the whole inconvenient truth, the famous speech, where he's, you know, he actually stood up on a chair on stage. He didn't have a ladder, I think, like he did in the Inconvenient Truth movie, but showed this um, alarming rise uh, in CO2 emissions and talked about the, 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 the gross, gross threats uh, of, of, of these emissions. So... It was a um, it was an amazing experience to be with you know, all these delegates. I don't I don't think there was any particular proclamation or anything that came out of it. But all these, you know, all of these delegates, people that were there, went back to their congregations or to their faith based organizations or to their you know to their governments and and were I, I hope more and more focused on you know the big issues of sustainability. Wow! And there was even a moment when you met. Gorbachev, right? Yeah, that was that was really one of the coolest things. Um, there's that one evening we were all invited. Oh, by the way, we stayed in the in the Hotel Rosia, which is just off the Red Square, and it's right next to that that big cathedral that's called Saint I mean, Saint Basil's Cathedral. Right there, you can picture it with the, sort of the onions, the, the nine onions on the top, right, right, or the domes on the top. It's, it's a classic, and we were right off of the Red Square uh, at this. Um, this very, very dreary hotel called the Hotel Rosia. And then we were taken off to the Armand Hammer Center for the conference. But one um, evening, we were right invited to the Kremlin. And so we all went in, and the purpose was to hear a, hear a talk by Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev. And um, he basically, I, and I was so honored, and it was just an amazing experience to be in this hall in the Kremlin, Amory, I was with Amory, Carl Sagan was with us, Tim Worth, Al Gore, you know, various people that, that were on our delegation. And, and Gorbachev presented this whole notion of the global green cross and that just as we have a global red cross, you know, that responds to crises and wars and things like that, uh, a global green cross could be proactive and respond to different environmental threats and bring to bear and, and all, over the, all over the world. And we actually... Um, He's actually formed, he did form the Global Green Cross. And in the United States, as you know, it's Global Green. Uh, the, the term Green Cross was already taken. So Matt Peterson and others that founded the U.S. version called it Global Green. 
But then afterwards, um, you know, we were in a, you know, one of these just, I mean, the Kremlin is just unbelievably gilded. Everything is just these amazing floors and gold, everything, and very, very fancy. And reception, and Gorbachev was very warm. I, I did have a chance to, to meet him, and he, he was one of these people who sort of took your hand and held your hand for a second and looked you in the eye, and, and he was very wow. welcoming and asked where I was from and, you know, what how that was going. And he later came to the Rocky Mountain Institute and visited there. I think I told you that. Um, so we'd had, um, we had quite a, it was quite a time. And then actually later Gorbachev came to Los Angeles and he, again, he held my hand and he said, he remembered being in, being in the Kremlin, but wow, that was a, you know, it was such a, it was so, so many extremes. I mean, it was so extremely cold. Right. It was so extremely dreary in Moscow, you know, that the Moscow, the Russians had just sent off, the Soviets just sent off troops to quell an uprising in the Azerbaijan. I mean, it was just like a, a really, there's so many weird things happening. But then here was this sort of this jewel of a conference with these, again, the global spiritual and parliamentary leaders all taking, all taking, all taking action together. It's really very great. Wow. Unreal. And so then you actually made a quick detour over to Alaska on the same trip. Did you not? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know why. Uh, actually, I do know why. I was asked to speak at a in Juneau, I guess it was, at an Alaska Craftsman uh, conference. And it was just the dead of winter. And uh, the nicest people up there. But I, was, I went, from, yeah, went from the cold of Moscow. Um, and I guess I should back up a little bit and just talk a little bit more about Moscow because uh, it, it was the winter, but hey, we, were, <laughs> we lived in Colorado, lived in the mountains of Colorado. We can handle the cold. And that was the time when, you know, the Soviet Union was just opening up to free enterprise. Mm. And one of the things that was really interesting was that uh, a barber in Aspen, John Wyman, who we used to go to, um, for some reason, he had this connection with Natasha, this young student, Natasha, um, who was from Moscow, but I guess who had spent time in Denver and somehow in Aspen. And uh, he was kind enough to introduce us before I went over there. And she was kind enough to take a day and just to walk me around the city. And uh, we went to Gorky Street, which is uh, this little little street right off of the Red Square, and went into some of the first privately owned businesses uh, in, in the country. And we ate cochleata, which is this kind of awful ground up meat and deep fried. Uh, we went into supermarkets or markets, and you could and you could just see there was absolutely no vegetables available i mean it was just it really you know sure there was caviar and there was pickles everything but uh there was just nothing that we were accustomed to right i felt sorry sorry for the people for not having you know just fresh greens and i I came back thinking you know we should just be offering sprouts to people all over the world and sprouting kits so that you could at least have you know fresh some fresh greens and then we went off to a circus which was really fascinating a, a one ring circus um Right in, right in the heart of Moscow. And, and I remember it just, it was so unpretentious. I'd grown up and going to Ringling Brothers, Barnum Bailey Circus and the old Madison Square Garden in New York, which was a huge deal. And this was a small circus. And uh, I so well remember that at one point, this, this lady came strutting out in her high heels with this, just this huge mink coat on. And, uh, and uh, you know what? What is okay? What's what's going to happen now? And a gun went off, or a gunshot went off, and all of a sudden, all of the I guess they were minks. They were live uh, minks that were all somehow 
somehow hooked to her coat and they all jumped off and ran away. And there she was standing there in her bathing suit or in her, in her whatever formal attire or whatever it was. But it was fun. Hard to it leave. Was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and as we left and as we did leave Moscow, um, I think I was on a British Airways flight back to Heathrow. And, and I think, I think everybody on the plane started to clap. Uh, it, it isn't, a, it was very much of an oppressive country. They took our passports when we arrived. You usually don't want to let your passport out of your, out of right. your hands. They took them for days. Um, that hotel Rosia is known to have every other floor is a listening floor, you know, sort of spying in on all of the, the guests who were there. And, and you learn, a, you learn an expression, uh, it's sort of a frame of mind where the Russians say it, it is not possible. You could just be saying, how do I get from here to there? And they, you know, the answer might be, it is not possible. So it was, um, yeah, the bizarre set of limits that, that you felt going there and uh, was a great relief, great relief on the way out, but, but an exciting trip. And so you were, uh, you were on this trip on behalf of Rocky Mountain Institute, right? So do you want to tell us a little bit more about kind of what other speaking or traveling experiences that time afforded you? Yeah, it was a great, it was a great honor. I mean, as I look back at those years at the Rocky Mountain Institute, what, a, what an exciting time. Uh, I mentioned Gorbachev came to our, came back to the Institute and visited us. And I remember sitting and working with Amory and some guy named Bill Clinton called up. He was the governor of Arkansas at the time and he needed help. And so there was a lot going on and we were, we were jetting off. Uh, there was a, a good staff at the Institute and we were all jetting off to, to different conferences and different speaking engagements. And, um, you know, I was, I, I was on the road a lot and, uh, traveled, traveled, traveled the country extensively. One of my favorite trips, um, was to Singapore and, uh, Eng Lok Lee, um, or Mr. Lee, as, as, as many call him was, Sort of the leading energy efficiency designer, um, engineer uh, in Singapore, and then and then really around the world, and he had been involved when I was at RMI. He'd been involved in some of our conferences, and he and he showed how to slash the use of energy at the Compact Computer Corporation's uh, headquarters in in Houston. They kept building buildings, and he showed how to, you know, make them really really efficient. And he had a company uh, in Singapore called Supersymmetry international. And, uh, what a gentleman he was. He's he soft-spoken and just very, very progressive energy designer, uh, that Peter Rumsey ended up going and working with. And, and, uh, Peter formed Supersymmetry USA with our friend Ron Perkins, uh, as a result of this. But, but at one point, Mr. Lee called me up and he said, I want you to come to Singapore. And of course, Amory had been there and Amory was just, you know, the rock star and, and, uh, um, I said, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's important to me and my country, you know, that we keep educating uh, on energy efficiency, the principles of energy efficiency and some of the new technologies that are coming out. And I want you to come over for a week. And, and I did. And actually, your mom went with me. Pam went with me. And uh, I, I was on the radio station and I spoke at the university and we had all sorts of stakeholders groups. I think I gave five or six different different talks on sort of where the Institute was at with our with our findings with energy efficiency. And Mr. Lee was so gracious, you know, this older gentleman, uh, the low voice and, and he and his wife and their daughter took us out to dinner. The first night we were up on top of some, you know, one of those restaurants that revolves on top of a hotel. And, and he just said, what, what do you, what do you like to eat? And so we talked about our diets, which were kind of weird, I guess, for him. 
at the time. And he said, thank you. And then he ordered for us for the entire rest of the week, um, everywhere we went. And we had, uh, we had just fantastic, fantastic experience in Singapore. And then after all the work was done, uh, we had been planning to go to Fiji on a vacation just for a little bit, but uh, he just was adamant that it was unsafe to do that. And so he lent us, he had this old Mercedes Benz. It was a station wagon, diesel. Uh, of course, you're driving on what we call the wrong side of the road. And uh, we went up into Malaysia and drove up through the jungles of Malaysia in the rainy season, in the monsoon season, I guess they'd call it, uh, and had this whole experience on the South China Sea at this uh, really fantastic resort, completely deserted resort in the middle of the rainy season in Malaysia. But driving around and, you know, charging through raging, raging waters of stream crossings and monkeys out in the roads. And yeah, it was all, it was all part of the, all part of the experience and a colorful part of the experience. Well, dad, we're actually coming up to the, to the conclusion of our, this episode. Um, so this is just maybe a little snack of what's to come for a preview as we do some more reminiscing with you in the weeks to come and future episodes. I guess in closing, you know, we talked about just this lesson that most people are good, you know, wherever you go in the world. Are there any other learnings you would like to impart on us um, before we conclude today's podcast? Geez, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Now, that wasn't I, in the notes, but no. And I think I I think you know I would advise anybody traveling internationally to try to learn some of the basic phrases, you know, the please and thank yous in that country. And uh, you know, I still think about going to to, to Russia and and learning, you know, a little bit. Vugabriti Paruski. Do you speak Russian? No, me No, just a little. Ya Gabriti Ingliski. I speak English. You know. Just some, and that's awful. I mean, my pronunciations are way off, but but I think that people in in other countries just just love that when you eat their food and appreciate their food and appreciate their country, and and then if you are able to just pull out some just basics, the most basics, uh, I think it goes a long way. Yeah, just try your best to meet people where they are, right? Um, yeah. And just be open and receptive to what different cultures have to teach us, which is a lot. So with that, thank you for taking this trip down memory lane with (laughs) me today. And as I said, we'll have more to come on this. Um, But thank you. I love you. It's great to be with you. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Uh, We'll be back soon. Thanks here for doing that. I love you too. Okay. (laughs) Thanks everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.